The interchange is brought to you by Fronius. Fronius gives you more control over your solar energy than ever before with its versatile hybrid inverter, the Primo Gen 24 Plus. Whether you're storing solar power, integrating energy storage, looking for backup power, or all of the above, the Primo Gen 24 Plus has you covered. It comes with AC outlet terminals that provide solar power during outages without a battery, ensuring important loads in your house can continue to operate if the grid fails. Do you want the latest in tech plus peace of mind? Of course you do. And you can find it with Fronius. Go to fronius.us slash PV. That's F-R-O-N-I-U-S dot U-S slash PV. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Shale Khan. I'm a managing director at Energy Impact Partners. Stephen Lacey is unfortunately out this week, but fortunately for all of us, uh, we have upgraded. And in Stephen's place, we have a guest co-host with her own impressive pedigree. I'm joined by Dr. Melissa Lott. Melissa is a senior research scholar at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, where she leads the center's research program on renewables and the power sector, relevant to the types of things that we talk about here. Melissa, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Shale. Uh, while Stephen's out, I hope it's an upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm confident that it will be. Um, Melissa, you have a long storied background in the world of energy research and writing and forecasting and so on. Um, but I think one common thread amongst a number of things that you've done is that you've been at a few of the organizations that many of us in the energy sector know about for producing these big, complex, long-term forecasts of what's going to happen in energy. So you were at IEA, the International Energy Agency. You were at DOE, the Department of Energy in the US. You were at APERC, the Asia-Pacific Energy Research Center, all of which do these multi-decadal forecasts that get uh, that used a lot. They're venerated in some circles. Um, and also a lot of folks love to hate on those forecasts, um, oftentimes for not being aggressive enough on stuff like renewables. So I guess I'd start by asking you, um, like, what's something that being on the outside, uh, we wouldn't really know or understand about how those types of long-term forecasts come together? That's a really good question. I mean, I've been modeling these future energy scenarios, if you want to call them that, for over a dozen years. And as you said, a lot of different places in Asia and Europe and the U.S. And I think one of the things that I was a bit surprised by, I remember when I first encountered it, was that if you look at these long-term models for achieving decarbonization, you can't do it unless you have negative emissions. So whether that's carbon capture attached to biomass or direct air capture, the models break otherwise. And that's either a really dire situation and a statement of, you know, how inaction has left us in a little bit of a tricky place, or it's a direct, clear signal that we need to invest some money in these technologies if we want to get to our goals, if our goal is truly to hit net zero. Uh, fascinating yet controversial topic for us to <laughs> cover another time. Uh, okay, good. We'll bookmark that for the future. In the meantime, um, we have you here not to talk about long-term modeling, but to talk about a topic that I know is near and dear to both your and my heart, um, which is basically how to get to 24-7 clean energy. So I guess the brief bit of context here, we've talked many times before on this podcast, and a lot of folks in the industry have witnessed this uh, surge in commitments to reaching 100% clean energy by a variety of parties, states, states 
utilities. But I think the the new actors here, the ones that we're particularly interested in today, which is private sector actors who are consumers of energy. So think corporates. And in particular, the kind of early wave came from large tech companies, Facebook, Google, Amazon, et cetera, now expanding out well beyond that into industrial companies and consumer packaged goods companies and so on. Um, and so a lot of what these companies have done is they've signed on to what's called the RE100, which is this agreement to basically procure 100% of their energy from what are deemed clean sources or renewable sources. And great though that is, um, the pushback that I think has emerged has been, well, just procuring 100% of your energy on an annual basis, which is what they're basically committing to, isn't really getting to 24-7 clean energy. And so there is this kind of glimmering of a whole new wave coming that is intended basically to solve for that problem. How do you go from 100% on an annualized basis to 24-7? So that's what we want to talk about today. Um, maybe you can start us off by laying out the problem in a little bit more detail. Why is the 100% clean as generally defined sufficient necessarily? Um, and why does there need to be a next wave? Yeah, well, first on that, I think these 100% targets, and I know you've you've had a whole show dedicated to this, um, talking about what they can mean, how they could push the renewables markets forward. And I, I want to say at the onset of all this that 100% targets, you know, they're good because they send some kind of signal that this is what you want, that you want renewables. But they leave a couple of holes open. Um, one of them, I'm an engineer by training, you know, went through all the degrees you could get in engineering. And one of them is a technical problem. When you have a signal going into a market saying, I want on an annual basis, uh, renewables to cover my annual load, you miss potential holes. Um, you could just call them holes in the road you're driving down that are going to give you some bumps. So what happens on that day when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining for an extended period of time? And yeah, maybe you even have some batteries, but it's not enough of a backup. What happens there? Um, the other thing that it leaves you vulnerable to is criticism for greenwashing. Because the idea is if you're saying I'm 100% renewable, uh, we're powered by 100% renewables. But the reality is that during significant periods of the year, uh, you're actually pulling electricity from a grid that is full of renewables and other things. Can you really say that? And right now, you know, even though we've had very significant commitments from some organizations, you just mentioned a few of them, you know, it's not enough to unsettle what's going on in the grid. So it's not a massive problem. But as we go forward in any of these, you talked about on long-term scenarios we look at, if we're looking to decarbonize the electricity system, which is going to be the backbone of decarbonizing the energy system, we need a lot more electricity. We need it to a lot more renewables. And as we get to really high penetration levels of these renewables, we can't afford to be hitting you know holes in the road. We can't do that. It's going to cause problems for our grid, problems for consumers, and it's going to just leave us in a place that's wanting. Um, there was an example. I mean, Google's highlighted this years ago in 2016 when they announced that the following year in 2017, they were going to hit their 100% renewables target. And they said on an annual basis, we're, we're going to hit our target. But we actually can quantify the number of hours when we're using fossil fuels, when we're using grid-based electricity and what that does to our overall carbon footprint. Right. I want to talk more about Google because I think they've been the first ones to sort of publicly state this challenge and to announce that they themselves are attempting to try to move past it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that in, in terms of defining what the problem is, I think you alluded to this. It's sort of a tragedy of the commons mm -hmm. situation wherein, um, you know, if you're the first 
large consumer and you say, I'm going to procure, say I consume one gigawatt hour of power every year and I'm going to sign a contract that delivers me the power and associated credits, the renewable energy credits from one gigawatt hours worth of wind power somewhere in my region. Um, and say that that is additional for folks who are deep in this sector, they're going to um, want to talk a little bit about additionality. Basically, would this have happened? Would this wind farm have been built had you not procured from it? So assume it is additional. I think you will have achieved something there, right? And that's, that is meaningful. Completely. And in small volumes, um, a bunch of different players can do that. But then the challenge gets to be, you could just draw this forward to its logical conclusion, say every consumer commits to the same thing and says, I will procure 100% on an annualized basis. Um, but what you end up with is a bunch of uh, generation profiles from wind and solar and maybe other stuff that don't match up with the demand profiles from the consumers who are paying for them. And obviously you can't have a supply demand imbalance in electricity. So it, it works to a degree, but it's not the long-term solution. Yeah, I agree. I was trying to find an analogy talking with some of my um colleagues that work in investment um, that don't think about the grid in such a wonky, nerdy way as me. And I was trying to figure out an analogy that I could tell them to explain you know, why this was going to be a massive problem in the future. Um, and the best one I came up with, and Shale, you could tell me how much you love it or hate it, was actually the analogy of buying shoes. And right now, when we uh, procure renewables without considering their time of use, it's kind of like walking into a shoe store blindfolded, um, buying a pair of shoes and not knowing a, not knowing their size and not knowing if they're heels or sneakers or something else, uh, what you end up, I mean, you might get really, really lucky. You might have bought a pair of shoes that actually fits you pretty well, um, but you're much more likely to end up with a lot of blisters. Part of the year, you're not going to be able, even able to fit your entire foot into the shoe, so you're not going to have enough renewables. And then another part of the year, you're going to have an excess amount that you're paying for that you don't really need in that moment. Um, so you're going to be like sh stuffing socks in the end of your shoes. Either way, you're not going to be in a comfortable position. That is my best analogy to date. Um, <laughs> what about, wait, can I, can I, uh, can I try to go. amend it a little bit? Please go, I want a better bit? one. Well, Please no, go. I mean, the shoe one is interesting, but wait, what if instead of it being you go into a shoe store blindfolded, it feels to me more like it's like you're buying a pair of slippers, which is to say they do fit you some of the time. Mm -hmm. And some of the time they're exactly what you need, but there are other times when you're out in the world say <laughs> that your slippers are not the right shoes and don't fit you. Absolutely. And so what you actually need is a complement of a bunch of different kinds of shoes that you know serve your purposes, serve your demand profile for footwear over the course of any given day in the year. 100%, I like how you articulate it better. <laughs> All right, good. Um, <laughs> So let's talk then about what the emerging potential solutions are. So let's go back to Google for a second. So mm -hmm. you you described this. So Google was the first one um, among the large consumers and large tech companies to actually reach that first level mm -hmm. of 100% on an annualized basis. And when they did so, they said, okay, now our next challenge is getting to 24-7. Um, at the time when they did that, what did we sort of think, how is that going to play out and were they giving specific targets around it or were they just saying like this is this is the next phase however long it takes no so when i went i had to do a flashback for myself back to 2016 when they actually announced this and they put out this reference paper i think it was about a dozen pages or so and it was saying okay this is what we've done so far and here's what we're going to do as quickly as possible moving forward focusing on the things you already talked about which is additive etc so at the time when they put out this announcement, I think they were consuming around six terawatt hours of electricity across their operations. And for a scaling on that, that was about the amount of electricity being used in San Francisco at the time. 
And they were very much celebrating what they had done, but they were saying, here's the next gap that we have. Um, And they talked through, you know, the different kind of tactics they would have for that. So looking at where could they put in storage, you know, how do they make sure that this continues to be additional, um, and then looking at local sources of renewables. So where could they pick up, you know, renewables that were nearby their data centers, et cetera. Right, which also lays out a whole other set of questions, which I don't think we want to get too deeply into. But, Mm -hmm. you know, if there's a third level, so the first level is um, equivalent number of kilowatt hours or megawatt hours to what you consume on an annual basis. Mm -hmm. Level two is maybe equivalent uh, in matched in time. So at any given moment, you're procuring, you're, you're using a certain amount of power and you are procuring that same amount of clean power. The third would be locational um, and layering in the actual emissions profile of what is being displaced by the specific resource that you're procuring and aligning that with what you want to do. That feels to me to be, I mean, there's some sort of part of it that they're already doing, like you said, like making sure that they want the resources to be sited near their load. Um, I think there's a whole other level you could go to there, but that feels almost like superfluous. Yeah, well, I think recently, so earlier this month, there was the announcement that Google was going to be actually combining solar and storage near a new data center. So they are looking at ways to combine you know, local resources that can supply them with 24-7 renewables. Um, so they are looking at ways where they can directly combine technologies to give them what they want at that instant. And I want to talk through what we've seen so far, because I think what's changed between now and when Google first made that announcement is that we actually have some real contracts that we can look at and some announcements that start to give us an indication of how this might play out. Uh, So we'll do that after the break. But first, a word from our sponsors. The Interchange is brought to you by Fronius. Fronius has been making power electronics to help with solar and storage for many decades. They are a stalwart in the inverter business, and they've got a new inverter, the Primo Gen 24 Plus. Thanks to multi-flow technology and integrated backup power, the Primo Gen 24 Plus can keep supplying energy loads and charge a battery at the same time. It's also extremely simple to install in your home, and you can commission it right on your smartphone and connect it to your smart home. With a variety of integrated features like energy management, data communication, and basic grid backup, the Primo Gen 24 Plus offers uniquely flexible solutions for your home's solar energy supply. Learn more at fronius.us slash PV. That's F-R-O-N-I-U-S dot U-S slash PV. Okay, so we're starting to see some of the more sophisticated large energy buyers thinking about this time matching issue. So Melissa, why don't you give us an example of one of these early announcements that we've seen, and then we could talk a little bit about where we think it's going. Yeah, so over the past three to four months, and you and I were talking about this the other day, Shale, um, we've seen a lot of strong indicators that there's actual movement in these areas. So we've known for a while that just procuring wind or just procuring solar is not going to be supplying our hourly needs as a consumer. Like that's that's known, and we can quantify that. And there's a project going on at the Center on Global Energy Policy here at Columbia where we're putting numbers to that to help kind of not the earliest of adopters, but the next wave of adopters to understand that so that they can adjust their procurement practices accordingly. But 
effectively, in the last three to four months, we've seen a couple of different examples of folks announcing, hey, we're taking this challenge head on. Um, I'll just mention maybe two or three right now. One of them that I think is fascinating is an announcement that came out, I believe it was in November, with Microsoft and Vattenfall. And Microsoft, of course, has been making some very interesting announcements uh, generally around this space. But um, Vattenfall is the Swedish multinational power company. It generates power in Sweden and then a bunch of other countries in the region, including over into the UK and Denmark, Finland, etc. And they have announced a pilot of a 24-7 matching service, which sounds a bit like a dating service, but I mean, I guess it is in a way. Um, So they're looking at doing this 24-7 matching of demand and supply. So making sure that when you need electricity and you want it to be from renewables, that it's there on the grid in that instant for you. Right. I think that one, the Microsoft Vattenfall announcement is maybe the most interesting one to me for a number of reasons. So the, the first one is worth drawing a distinction between Microsoft as energy consumer Right. And like you said, they're doing a whole bunch of interesting things in procuring for their own supply. Um, And in this case, which is Microsoft partnering with Vattenfall to launch something for other players, right? Other consumers. This is saying if you're a corporate in Vattenfall territory, we can offer you this 24 7 renewables product. Um, So it's actually Microsoft being a part of the product, not a part of the consumption of that product necessarily. Absolutely. And it's interesting because in their announcements, they made a really clear statement where they said that their hope is that, at least in part, that this pilot will help inspire regulatory change, which will allow services like this to play a bigger role in the market more quickly, which I thought was interesting to include in the announcement. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, Okay, so two other things that I find really interesting about that one. The first one is you talked about it, it, the role that smart meters play, which I think honestly, you know, has been to some degree, it would have been a barrier to even figuring out how to go about procuring 24-7 clean energy if you're a consumer otherwise, which is like you you need, you know, uh, real-time or near real-time load data, demand data, in order to be able to match supply data to it. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good point that there's still a fair amount of the world, even in the United States, that does not have smart meters, mostly at the residential level in the US, but like half, almost half the US still does not have smart meters. So that that is a barrier, but I think it's one that is declining as time goes on. Well, I'd agree. I think it's, it shows us how technology is helping us in terms of fixing this problem. Um, but there's still certainly a gap. I mean, this can't be deployed everywhere. And, you know, I just got, I just moved back to the United States after working in Japan, and we were working with 21 countries. Good pieces of which some of them, like Papua New Guinea, for example, don't even have electricity access, much less um, smart meters on their homes to actually know, you know when they're using electricity, same in their businesses. So this certainly isn't a universal solution today, but what I think it's doing that's really important is A, bringing attention to this challenge and saying we can't just keep going down the road expecting annual you know, procurement on an annual basis to be enough um, when we get to these really high you know, penetration levels of renewables. We're going to have some headaches if we just keep going down that path. Um, but also that we have technology that if put in place and utilized appropriately with all the different software backups, et cetera, it can get us there. So this isn't an unsolvable problem. Right. And so the third thing that I think is important for us to talk about for a minute is that the reason that it is still most challenging to procure 24-7 clean energy is that it is difficult 
to fully match your load profile with the profile of solar and wind, which is the majority of what the procurement has been in the United States. This is where it made sense to me that the first of these, or one of the first of these big announcements happened in Sweden and with Vattenfall because they have a bunch of hydro. Um, and so, it, you know, I, I think as we're talking about like what resources is it going to take to get to fully load matching renewables, it's much, much easier if you have a bunch of clean base load power with hydro that you can then layer on the profile from other renewables on top of that. Absolutely. And it's a really good point. And I think it's why, to give another example, why we see some really ambitious climate targets coming out of countries like New Zealand, who have you know nearly 70% of their electricity coming from hydro. So they've got a lot of pump storage relative to their demand, and it gives them effectively a water battery already in their country that they can use. And that's helping them to push forward much more quickly. Right. When I speak with companies and when I speak with different organizations about this challenge and this gap, I get three guess pushbacks. The first pushback is, oh, well, my wind procurement won't do it. I'll just add solar in and a mix of wind and solar will be enough. And then the second pushback I get is, oh, well, if just procuring for my annual demand isn't enough, I'll procure for more than that. I'll procure for 150% of it and that will be enough. And we've seen some examples here recently that we should you know, chat about where that has gone south and caused some negative impacts on the people who are affected by those procurement processes. The third pushback I get is I'll just buy a big battery. And the analysis that we've done, you know, looking at what would it actually take for a bunch of commercial organizations to actually do that is, in general, it's going to take a lot of batteries. And a more economic, a cheaper, lower price option is to really look at diversity and to say how many different resources do you have access to? And even backing up one more minute, what is your goal? Is your goal 100% renewables or is it 100% clean? What does clean mean? Is it carbon free? Does that include nuclear? There's all these questions there that matter in terms of how you actually procure. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so some of the other early examples that we've seen of this, which I don't think we need to spend a ton of time on because it's a similar story. So Daimler is another one. Daimler signed uh, a, as a consumer, signed a, a big deal with Statcraft. Um, in Germany, which is going to time match uh, procurement sufficient to all of Daimler's electricity demand in Germany. Again, that is a hydropower, primarily hydropower product, plus filling in the gaps with solar and wind. So that's obviously, you know, where you have that option, that is going to be, this is going to make it much easier to do it in the early days. But let's, let's talk about some of the other um, examples that we've seen so, thus far, and maybe even focus in on, on the US where there are parts of the country that potentially you could do that in the Pacific Northwest, for example, but we've started to see some interesting activity even outside the Northwest. So what's another example that we've seen so far that you think is interesting? Um, so if we move out of the Northwest, uh, we can go down into Nevada and we can look at this recent deal that Google did, which is going to be taking solar plus storage in Nevada. And I believe it's dedicated to actually supplying the electricity for a new Google data center. And they're saying, hey, we've you know run the numbers and we think that actually if we can do solar and pair it up with, so I think it was 350 megawatts of solar and as much as 280-ish megawatts of battery storage, that that will be enough to provide us with 24-7, you know, a supply for this particular data center. Right. And so that's a, that's a huge, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I think um, a lot of folks have assumed that at some point this corporate procurement wave would start to extend into renewables plus storage. It's like the logical next step. Um, but we hadn't actually seen it happen a whole lot. 
I've actually been a little bit surprised at how slow it had been to emerge. I think partially that's been a, a cost thing, like even just procuring renewables. Some of the companies that signed early offsite renewables contracts ended up underwater just because of how power prices declined afterwards and the structure of their contracts. And so I think there was a bit of like price sensitivity. Um, but this one is huge. Like as much as 280 megawatts of storage, that's a that's a chunk of uh, the total storage that gets deployed in any given year. So that's bi- that it's important um, for its scale, if nothing else. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, it sends a clear signal that they are dedicated, at least when I read it, that they're dedicated to figuring this out and to being able to say sooner rather than later, 24-7, we're supplying our electricity needs with renewables. Um, and in this case, you know, the storage makes sense if you run the economics on it. And I can just do some back of the envelope. And, and it makes sense for them to consider storage. I did note in their announcement they're not committing to an exact amount on that. But I feel like that's going to be a, a live and learn as the project goes on type thing. And I hope that they do what they did in 2016 and, you know, publish a paper and talk about what they what they found and how it worked out so that others can learn. And I think you touched on a really important point, which is what's happened to some of the earlier adopters. So what's happened to some companies, some towns who kind of jumped on the 100% renewable bandwagon early and maybe it didn't work out so great for. And so I wondered if we could talk about a a couple of examples in that or at least one. Yeah, no, I think it's important that we do because I think all the excitement around this 100% stuff um, needs to be tempered a little bit with there, there are some stories that haven't gone well for the customer. And I think they're gonna, emerge at some point, there'll probably be at least a little bit of a roadblock um, to really widespread adoption of this stuff. So yeah, let's let's do it. Yeah. So one example is near and dear to my heart. Um, <laughs> it's in a town called Georgetown, Texas, which is north of Austin. Um, and my family has deep roots in Texas and I actually know a number of the people. Uh, and I remember when they were in Georgetown, I remember when they were going through these conversations about how do we hit this goal of, I believe it was at the time, 30% of its energy coming from renewables by 2030. And at the time, you know, the discussion was really around renewables being a cost stability, uh, reducing risk type of option. And also in Texas, I mean, we had tons of wind flying onto the system and, you know, it's a great state for solar as well. And so it looked very promising. And so what they did is they, they signed up in 2014 and 2015 for a number of wind and solar energy provider contracts to meet their city's electricity needs. And they ended up reaching 100% of like a renewable electricity target. So they were actually procuring way more renewable electricity than they needed. Um, they had more than 1,000 megawatt hours under contract for the city of Georgetown. And this is a town of about 75,000 people. Um, and about 800 of those were coming from renewable sources. But to give you context, in 2018, Georgetown consumers were only using just under 700 megawatt hours. So summarizing all of it, what was happening is the town had procured a lot of renewables, Um, enough that they could say on an annual basis that they were procuring more than 100% of their needs. Um, But they were having to pay for those renewables under the terms of their contracts. And then they were also having to pay for things like natural gas to fill in the gaps in the hourly demand. And no surprise there, um, in hindsight, this has resulted in huge increases in bills for consumers, which is causing a lot of tension. Right. And in case there's any confusion around like how this works, I, my understanding, basically what, what would happen is they, they would fill in the blanks with natural gas or, you know, 
wholesale power, like commodity wholesale power. But then that excess, the renewables that were producing that they had signed a contract for, so they are the off taker for, but that exceeded their actual load, they basically have to remarket into the wholesale market. So they're, they're, they then become a seller. And the problem with becoming a seller is if you've signed a power purchase agreement at a fixed price, and when you resell into the market, the market price is lower, you're taking a hit. And I think that's exactly what happened to them. And it's, and it's also, it's a broader challenge, right? Which is as we build more and more renewables on the system, you know, power prices tend to go down when those renewables are producing. And so there's this, um, you know, there are a variety of risks to whoever bears those costs um, in these contracts. There's at least a couple of versions of it. One's called shape risk. Another one's called covariance risk. And they just become more and more exacerbated as renewable penetration increases. It's just another reason why adding storage, at least for a time, is probably going to make sense. If the cost of the battery is low enough and you can control um, either when it produces from the sense of matching it to your consumption, or at least when you have to sell it back into the market, that can mitigate some of this issue that Georgetown faced. Yeah, and I feel like it's a great example of why I think that if you look at time of use procurement, you look at considering 24-7 um, and what you need in terms of electricity supplies, you know, on an hourly basis at a minimum, if not real time. I mean, this is why I think that is only going to grow in the future because it takes out a lot of the uncertainty in terms of a procurement practice. It also means that organizations like Georgetown have an option where they don't have to kind of get their brains around all these different risks and where's the price of natural gas going to be and, you know, how far do we think... Uh, the price of renewable power is going to go and and what am I reasonably going to be able to sell this back to it? It eliminates that and says, you know, what do you want? Is a service that you want 24-7 renewables to meet your demand? If so, in a lot of the United States, we have the technology and the ability to actually supply you with that. Right. Um, I'm curious because I don't know. You mentioned, uh, you know, the difference between renewable and clean earlier, which we've talked about before as well, um, and kind of where like hydro and potentially even um, fossil fuels with carbon capture and sequestration sit in this whole thing. I haven't seen really any corporates, at least that I know of, saying we will procure clean and that will include some credits from nuclear facilities to maybe extend their lifetime or um, to pay for adding CCS to existing thermal plants. Have you seen any of that? So I'm just... I would want to double check the Vattenfall Microsoft announcement, but in that they do include saying that nuclear is a part of the potential mix that you could have. Um, so the question of does clean include natural gas with CCS? Does it include nuclear? Um, we have you know just under 100 nuclear power plants across the country that are looking to come up to the end of their lifetime in pretty short order. Do we want to keep those nuclear power plants on the system? Do corporates want to include that in their procurement? And I think that when it comes to these 24-7 contracts, this is why you see this Microsoft Vattenfall announcement announcement, including a whole suite of different things that could be included in the mix. What I wonder is if as the next wave in all this, we're actually going to see carve outs happening where, okay, you want time of use in your contracting. Okay. Are you going to say, I'm great with accepting clean energy and here's my definition of it. And how do we set up a market and a set of services so that you can get exactly what your company wants to procure? And that could include nuclear or not. It could include natural gas with CCS or not. Right. Yeah. There's a uh 
whole bunch of complexity there. And then there's a whole other layer that's emerging now that I also find really interesting, which is companies like Microsoft and like Stripe and like Shopify saying, well, I'm going to go beyond just procuring clean energy for my facilities. I'm going to effectively, well, there are different versions of it, right? Microsoft's big announcement was I'm going to neutralize all the emissions that our company has ever produced. Stripe said, I'm going to spend a million dollars on direct air capture or, you know, whatever it costs to to procure it. So there's this like, you know, what it feels to me like um, what started as a relatively straightforward set of commitments that companies were making 100% clean energy um, have, have as now in, in generally very good ways, sort of metastasized into a whole bunch of more ambitious versions of those commitments, whether specifically around power or around climate change impact mitigation in general. And so what'll be interesting to see is like, will there, will any consensus emerge um, in how to go about doing this amongst all these large players? And then particularly, I mean, where the big impact will be is when you have all the followers and it's not just Microsoft and Stripe and these very rich tech companies doing it, but when it it sort of becomes available to small and medium enterprises and um, even individual consumers. And, you know, just to talk about consensus for a moment, the consensus around the Microsoft announcement, I think, is that a new bar has been set. And so, uh, you know, they they said, you know, not only are we going to make sure that in the future we're not emitting anymore, but we're going to get rid of all of our legacy emissions and we're going to put money behind it. And we're going to make sure that those technologies can develop to actually get us there. And I think we could have a very interesting conversation about where that money may or may not go. But the bottom line is the consensus, at least from the business says that I speak with, is, okay, I guess you know this is the new hurdle to jump and I've got to get there. Because any announcement short of that is now going to look, look a little light, look a little lacking. Right. This like keeping up with the Joneses of climate change mitigation commitments, probably good for the planet. So fine. Happy with a little hey, healthy I'm competition. All about it. <laughs> <laughs> and if it helps to spur growth in markets that are right now just aren't making it, um, uh, that's fantastic. It's sending a clear signal that'll help for growth. Well, Melissa, thanks so much for, for coming on. You are a worthy replacement for Stephen. Thanks, Shale. And I, uh, I would just say this chair is pretty comfortable here. So uh, if <laughs> Stephen doesn't show up another time, um, I'd be happy to fill it again. Love it. <laughs> Melissa Lott is a senior research scholar at Columbia University at the Center on Global Energy Policy. The Interchange is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Stephen Lacey is the executive producer, though he only sometimes shows up for the job, apparently. Stephen Lacey and Ingrid Lobet are our editors. You can follow us all on Twitter, be Stephen, The Interchange Show, and Melissa, even. If you want to support the show, please give us a shout out on social media or give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Even better, tell your colleagues about the show. I'm Shale Khan, a managing director at Energy Impact Partners, and this is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. 